progressive ideas, conversations from schools, and the newest concepts in education. This is the School Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the School Leadership Podcast from NEHT and to our March episode. Now, good, effective ventilation and the wider question of overall air quality in schools has been thrown into the spotlight chiefly due to the pandemic. Of course, we've known for a while that ventilation can be a key mitigation against the transmission of COVID. Adequate ventilation reduces how much virus is in the air. It helps lower the risk of aerosol transmission too. And the NEHT's James Bowen is about to be joined by two guests to discuss this. Professor Catherine Noakes is a chartered mechanical engineer with a background in fluid dynamics and has led research into ventilation, indoor air quality and infection control in the built environment. Professor Mark Mon-Williams holds a chair in cognitive psychology at the University of Leeds and is Professor of Psychology at the Bradford Institute of Health Research. They're about to talk about the transport of airborne pathogens, the presence and feasibility of the kinds of technology that can reduce these pathogens and, most importantly of all, the options for schools. So, uh, Mark, Kath, thank you so much for, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, Mark, I'll come to you first, if that's OK. And perhaps you can just give us a bit of an overview um, of the, the work you've been doing when it comes to, to ventilation in schools. Absolutely, James. Uh, so I guess we were all taken by surprise when the pandemic sort of suddenly sort of hit. Uh, and of course, it produced a lot of sort of behaviour sort of changes in, in all of us and made us sort of think about what we're doing to maintain uh, cleanliness and sort of better hygiene. Um, and one of the things that happened when the pandemic hit is the spotlight was sort of shone on the issue of ventilation within schools. Um, when we started realising that sort of COVID was an airborne illness, then we suddenly started asking ourselves the question about the ventilation that exists in classrooms. Um, and off the back of that, we started to sort of think about the issues around classrooms where ventilation uh, is suboptimal. Um, and that then starts raising sort of questions about whether air clean technologies might have a role to play in these settings. So we're very, very passionate about the use of science to drive forward good changes in our systems, whether health systems and education systems. So we really want to take a scientific approach to understanding whether air cleaning technologies have a role to play in fighting COVID, but more generally in decreasing airborne illnesses that we know affect a number of children in the schools throughout the UK and indeed throughout the world. So we're scientists, so we wanted to run a trial. So we worked with the Department for Health and Social Care and the Department for Education to set up a trial that really addressed two questions. And the first sort of question was, what are the feasibility issues associated with putting these technologies in schools? So it sounds very simple, let's just put some air clean technology in school. But as we know, schools come in different shapes and sizes. We also know that teachers and school leaders are incredibly busy individuals. So there are real practical questions that we need to ask about how we could put these systems in sort of schools in a way that doesn't create a lot of demands on our school leaders and our teaching sort of our staff. So the first part of the study was really just looking at the practicalities of putting these technologies into classrooms. And the second part of the study is very much looking then, what's the impact of these technologies in terms of school absences being driven 
by COVID and other airborne illnesses. So that's that's the study in broad outline. Thanks, Mark. And I'd, I'd like to come back a bit later and talk a bit more about the study and particularly the air cleaning devices. But maybe if I take a quick step back first, if that's OK. And Kath, I wonder, I, mean, I think most people now, I think almost everybody knows about the importance of good ventilation when it comes to it comes to COVID. I think that message is very, very clear. Um, but I'm just thinking about what, you know, what are the sort of simple measures that schools should be working their way through? before we get to the cleaning machines? Because I think my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that actually there's a lot to do first. Our knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be going, let's get a machine in. It's about how can we improve ventilation in other ways, and only then we need the machine. So could you talk a bit about those sort of other measures that schools should be considering? Yeah, James, so it is, ventilation is really important. We know that now, and we know it's because the virus is in people's exhaled breath. So you know when you, you breathe, you talk, you sing, you cough, you release this virus. Um, ventilation's not a magic bullet solution. So some of that, even if you've got really good ventilation, you can still be infected because when you're very close to people, the ventilation doesn't mitigate that bit. But the ventilation basically mitigates when a virus is in the air and it can build up over a longer period of time and it can infect people at further distances. So yeah, there are a lot of things we can do. The first step is understanding the ventilation that you've got, lots of different types of ventilation out there. And just because you don't have windows that open doesn't necessarily mean you don't have any ventilation. So there are schools which have mechanical ventilation systems that will supply air through ducts and grills that um, provide fresh air to the room. Some of them will have passive hybrid ventilation systems that, that bring air in outside and exchange it with air indoors. And then an awful lot of schools, as we know, have windows open. Um, and there's lots of things people can do. I mean, the obvious one is open the windows, um, but you can maximize that um, in most rooms. So if you can try and open more than one window, that's really helpful, especially if they're opposite sides of the room. If you can open a window and a door, then you get a better airflow through that room. Um, sometimes you can open windows that are at low level and high level, and that allows air to circulate better in the room. Um, and lots of schools now have CO2 meters that can allow them to help understand some of this. And with the opening of windows, because I think, you know, the vast majority of, of schools I speak to, that is their, their option, really. They don't, most don't have the mechanical, so they're, they're, the windows are key. And like you say, having a high one and a low one, et cetera. I know one of the big challenges, of course, over the last few months has been the balance between good ventilation, but not freezing <laughs> everybody in the classroom. Um, perhaps less so as we go into the spring, but I, I know certainly in the winter months, that's been a real concern that we've had children sat with coats and gloves and scarves, which is not ideal um, if, if you were choosing the best learning environment. How should schools try and get that balance right? You know, is it necessary to have all the windows open all the time or is there a kind of balanced approach we can think about? Yeah, so it is tricky, that one. Um, and I mean, one of the things that winter does give us is that it is actually easier to ventilate a room when it's cold and when it's windy. So you get actually more airflow for the same size of window opening when it's cold um, outside or when it's windier outside. But we do have to think about how to balance that. So actually, um, this is where we can, you, you can open windows uh, intermittently. So you can open them perhaps more widely during break times, um, just open them a crack the rest of the time, um, open doors intermittently to help flush air out of the room during break times and things. Um, 
opening high level windows can help because then you don't get the sort of cold drafts that come in through the, the lower level windows. It allows the air to mix in the room a bit better. Um, and again, this is where the CO2 monitors can help because if you have a CO2 monitor in your classroom, you can watch what the, the, the CO2 is. So CO2 is it's not a, a magic solution, but it's a um, it's a proxy for the ventilation room. So CO2 does not correlate directly to virus, um, but it tells you it's, it's an indicator of how good the ventilation is in the room. Um, and if your CO2 levels are low um, and your temperatures are low, you can maybe say, well, I can afford to shut the windows a little bit because my CO2 levels are okay. But if your CO2 levels are high, then that's where you're thinking about opening the windows a bit. Um, and usually if your CO2 levels are very high, your temperatures won't be low at the same time. I've, and it'd be quite interesting to talk a bit more about the, the CO2 monitors, if we can, because I know, you know, that I've seen lots of questions about, well, when is high too high? There seems to be, from what I can understand, a little bit of conversation out there about the precise level at which schools could be should be concerned. So um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about, you know, you've said a bit about what, you know, they're a proxy, but how they work and and when schools should be worried. You know, should it be a case of, oh, it's gone red, everyone evacuate the classroom? I suspect that's probably a bit extreme, but how should they be using? What are these levels? How does that work? Yeah, so the CO2 monitors work because when we breathe out, we breathe out CO2. Uh, it's part of our metabolic processes. And the CO, that means that the CO2 levels in an occupied room are higher than the baseline CO2 levels outdoors. Um, and therefore, the, the more active we are, the more CO2 we produce. So CO2 increases with, with activity. Uh, the more people are in a room, the more CO2 increases because obviously there are more people breathing. Um, but if you've increased the ventilation, then that starts to bring it back down again. So we're trying to it's very hard to say what values of CO2 should we have. You know, there is no sort of hard threshold value at all where it's safe or unsafe. They are always a guide and the number, you know, shouldn't be a, a slave to the numbers. They're not a perfect marker. There's lots of things that can affect the accuracy of a CO2 meter. So uh, how you place it in the room, the meter itself, what the outdoor conditions are. So some places will have higher outdoor levels than other places. Um, the activity that you do. So, you know, if you've got a CO2 meter in your classroom and you um, the kids do something more active for um, for a period of time, you'll notice the CO2 meter go up a bit because that's responding to their higher their change in their metabolic rate. Um, the sort of consensus values around what is good or poor ventilation have had have been debated, and we don't know exactly how these correlate to risk, but um, if your, if your CO2 reading is 800 parts per million or less, then really you shouldn't be worrying much at all about your ventilation. It's good. Um, if you are regularly getting CO2 readings above 1,500 parts per million, sort of for more than about 20 minutes at a time, then you, there's a real indicator that your ventilation isn't good enough and you need to do something about it. And between the two values, I think there's a lot of debate about what happens between the values. Really, as your CO2 is creeping up, that's an indicator to say, do something to the ventilation to bring it back down. Um, but if you can't get it all the way to 800, if you can only get it to 900, you know, don't worry too much. It's not, a, not that accurate a value. Um, if you're regularly over 1500 and you 
even when you open windows and open doors, you can't get it down, then that's a sign that you need to take some different action in that room. And that's where things like air cleaners come into play. And you mentioned there about the placement of them. Um, I get, from what you're saying, would I be right in assuming that what probably people should do is move them about, at, at different, you know, so you take readings in different parts of the classroom, or is there advice that says, actually, you should always have it at a certain level? Where, what should people be thinking about in terms of where they put the monitors? Yeah, so it's better to, I mean, I would, I would keep it in one place in the classroom if you can. Um, but, um, and most of them require to be plugged in. So it's a good idea to plug one in um, put it where you can see it, perhaps at the front of the classroom, put it at a place which is occupant height. So put it on a table or something where it's, it's representing the breathing in a room. But if you are seeing high readings, um, then maybe move it, see whether you still see high readings at the other side of the room. It, you know, air's not a sort of uniform thing. It, you get pockets of higher and lower concentrations in rooms. So it's worth just seeing whether um, your CO2 meter is just picking up a higher pocket. Um, and don't put them too close to people because, you know, if you breathe on it, then you're catching your breath rather than catching the air in the room. Um, although, of course, if you've got a CO2 meter and you've never used one before, actually go and breathe on it, play with it, see what it does when you do these things, because um, that'll really help you understand where it works and where it doesn't work. And I know one of the concerns I've heard people sort of say is, you know, I think the Department for Education has sent out roughly enough for sort of one between two classrooms. Um, obviously, that doesn't take into account all the other rooms in a school. People often say, well, we've got an office, we've got a lunch hall. But, um, yeah, how is it enough having one between two classrooms? Obviously, it means you're going to have to move them about. Are there any advice we can give to schools when they are trying to manage effectively a kind of a rationed amount? Yeah, I mean, it would obviously be better if every classroom had one, but obviously, I guess, you know, there's resourcing comes into this. But I think even with one per two classrooms, you can do an awful lot. So what I wouldn't do is move the meters, you know, between classrooms, you know, and take it around each classroom, take a reading and move on. I would leave it in a classroom for at least a day. So I'll test up a rotor and say, well, you know, these classrooms have it these days, these classrooms have it a different day. And what you'll often find is that, over time, you learn how to use the ventilation in a room. You learn the things that make the CO2 go up. You learn the things that, to do to keep the CO2 down. And perhaps after a while, you don't need to use one so much because you learn the, 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 the tricks to make the ventilation in the classroom work. And little things like, you know, you know you're going to be doing a, something with the children that's a bit more active. Open the windows more widely before you start and it will keep the CO2 levels down. And perhaps I can come back now to, to the sort of study and the work you've been doing, uh, and particularly let's perhaps focus in a bit on, on the air cleaning machines. Uh, Mark, I wonder if you might do, so I've seen a bit of sort of chatter out there, people saying, well, we had this trial in Bradford, it was announced what seems like a very long time ago now, and um, people saying we don't seem to have seen the results, you know, have, have the machines worked in that trial? What's going on? Is, is there any kind of updates you can give us in terms of what you've learned from the trial when you expect to have more information, how that's progressing? No, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so let me just quickly sort of say about sort of a trial sort of cell. Uh, so as I say, there's two components to it. So the first sort of component was trying to understand what are the issues that we need to consider when we're installing these technologies in the schools. Uh, and then as we said, the second component is around 
seeing what impact they have on our school absences being driven by, by, by COVID and other airborne illnesses. So studies actually got three arms in it. Uh, so we have control sort of schools, uh, which are just the same as all the other sort of schools up and up and down sort of our country uh, in, in, in terms of their uh, normal uh, everyday sort of business. Then we have these sort of schools that matched with our control schools, but have got air filtration devices. And then we have another set of sort of schools, again, matched uh, with our control sort of schools uh, that are using systems that use uh, ultraviolet violet light. Uh, so this just allows us to have a look and see if there's differences between different types of, sort of technologies in terms of their effectiveness. So we have completed that first part of the sort of our study in terms of really understanding the various issues that we need to consider before we start embarking on putting these devices in sort of our schools. Um, and we've started to get some insights that we put out uh, in that sort of a test sort of our article, uh, and we're starting to communicate so that school leaders who do want to think about these technologies will hopefully have a good understanding of the type of things to consider uh, before making what can often be a substantial investment. So those, those results are, are out and being continued to be sort of published. The other very exciting thing that we're doing is starting to get a better understanding of the impact of these technologies in terms of sort of a school sort of absences. Uh, and that's a very large piece of data analytics for work, uh, which is happening even as we're talking right now uh, amongst our, our, our data sort of science sort of colleagues. And what uh, is happening there is, is just looking at the, the, the data uh, around sort of absences, but of course we also have to put in sort of contextual factors. So any study, uh, you sometimes get results that occur through sort of a chance. So one thing that we can do is start trying to uh, uh, put the data that we have on the air quality within sort of our classrooms together with our understanding of what's happening in terms of school absences and make sure that any effects are genuinely being driven by, by a plausible causal mechanism rather than by sort of our chance. But the other thing that we of course need to take into account is whether there are just natural sort of variations in the impact of infections in schools. So one of the things that we don't have a good handle on uh, and that we really want to control for is whether schools in particular areas serving particular communities are at higher general risk of being uh, impacted by COVID than other sort of schools. Um, so this is actually causing us to do a piece of analysis trying to understand what geospatial factors uh, in terms of demographics impact upon sort of school absences driven by sort of COVID. Uh, so you can imagine there's various sort of complexities in those sort of analyses, uh, but they're ongoing right now. And as soon as we have, you know, first sort of tranche of results, then we'll be releasing those. Um, but but uh, it's really important to emphasize that uh, the consequences of this study are enormous. Uh, and if we find these technologies really are effective, then that's going to have, uh, we then need a sort of a debate as to, as, as to whether, you know, we should really be investing uh, in, in this sort of aspect, given that we have a finite pot of money and an awful lot of things that we need to do to support children, young people and support schools sort of leaders. So it's really, really important that we, we apply the very, very best sort of scientific techniques and be very, very confident in the robustness of our, of our sort of findings. And that takes sort of a time. And there's one thing that we learned through the pandemic in terms of the vaccines and development is that the prize for doing it right and pursuing rigorously the scientific sort of methodology is you ultimately find the long-term sort of solutions that give genuine sort of hope. And that's what we're absolutely determined uh, uh, happens in this. We, we, so we, 
when we talk about sort of pharmaceuticals and medicines, we're all kind of like, oh, yes, well, we need to do our control trials and the rest of it. Somehow when it's technology, it's like, oh, can't we just put technology in? And the answer is no, we still need to do the appropriate controlled sort of trials to have the sort of confidence that investments that we make and advice that we give and policies that we write are based on the very, very best possible sort of evidence. Uh, so that's what that's what's happening at the present moment. Um, and if I could just make one final sort of a point, uh, and, 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 and Cass speaks so eloquently about this, it's, it's that we really need to take a good, hard look at the building infrastructure that our children, young people are spending so much sort of time in. Um, and I think it's very easy now sort of point sort of fingers. If I've got sort of say two years ago, you know, I'm passionate about trying to improve uh, uh, the health of our, of our population uh, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, driving up sort of child health. Two years ago, thought of looking at air quality within classrooms and crossed my mind. Now, fortunately, it's raised this really sort of important sort of issue. And so there's a real opportunity now for us to think holistically about whether we're providing the very best possible environments for our children, young people in terms of their ultimate health outcomes, but also in terms of their education. And so again, this is why we really want this sort of study to provide the very, very best possible robust sort of evidence. So we're not just looking at some short-term solutions here, but we're really looking decades into advance about how we can provide the very, very best learning environments for our children, and young people, give them their very, very best possible start in life. It feels such an important point, doesn't it? You know, take COVID out of this. Actually, if we're teaching children in poorly ventilated spaces, pre-COVID, that surely can't have been a good thing, you know, partly because of other viruses, but partly because actually I'm assuming it's not conducive to good learning to have very high CO2 monitors. So it feels like that long-term part of this is absolutely critical as well. Um, I'll tell you what, one thing I'd be interested to just... Sorry, sorry James, I, yes, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I was going to say, yeah, and there's lots of evidence that supports that, but Cass, the expert, and she can tell you about the evidence. But no, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, and I, as I say, it's easy now with hindsight to go, why won't we think about it? Cass was thinking about this, uh, but myself and you know, lots of the school leaders I interact with really sort of weren't. So let's take the opportunity that's been afforded by the sort of pandemic to say, hang on, here's sort of something that we could and should be focusing on in the long term. I, I thank you. Yeah. And I want to come back to those the machines themselves just for a moment. And just, can we can we say with confidence that they are effective? So obviously, what, yeah, we hear you talking about the study and the importance of the scientific method. And I think that, okay, of course, makes entire sense. I suppose there might be a question in some people's mind that says, well, do these things actually make a difference? There, do we? You know, we're putting them in schools. The DfE, I think, has made seven or nine thousand now available. Do they actually work? If I you know, cut to the chase, is it? Do we know enough about their sort of effectiveness now? I'm not sure, Catherine. That's one for you, perhaps, to come in on. Yeah. So there are some things we do know. Uh, so we know from the the physics of how these machines work that yes, they will have an effect. So um, there there are two different types of machines in our study. One is a HEPA filter devices. They're basically a box. They've got fan uh, a fan inside them, and then they've got a series of filters. And those filters will filter out particulates that are in the air. So that might be pollen and dust, but it will also include microorganisms, including the viruses that cause um, COVID-19. Um, so if you put one of these in the room, it, it basically draws air through and cleans the air that's in the room. And it's doing the same job that ventilation is doing. So it's removing something from the air. Um, so it's an alternative way of doing it. The other devices that we've got are um, 
UV devices. So we know there's years worth of research that shows that ultraviolet light can kill microorganisms. So that doesn't physically remove particles. It doesn't have any, any other benefits other than microbial, but it can, can remove microorganisms and well, kill microorganisms that are in the air. So the actual technologies, this really sound evidence, what we don't have is the understanding of if we put these in, um, regardless of the ventilation system in the room, do you see a benefit from the devices? And we think there will be a benefit, but we don't know how much benefit. So does it reduce infection rates by 2% or does it reduce it by 50%? That's the bit we don't know. Um, so that, that's where these come in. So, And I think that's really important in terms of how we invest in these devices, because we have to remember they don't ventilate a room, so they don't deal with the high carbon dioxide, um, they, which can give you other issues to do with, you know, that's the high carbon dioxide is the thing that makes you feel a bit sleepy in the afternoon so you don't concentrate as well. So they know never a replacement for ventilation. You always have to have some ventilation. Um, and what we don't know yet is how much benefit you get on top of the ventilation by putting these devices in. And I suppose it's perhaps an obvious point, but it's worth restating that because of that, the CO2 monitor doesn't drop when the, the readings don't uh, drop when you put the machine in because, because they're not having that effect that, you know, I suppose that's really important. I, perhaps perhaps it doesn't need stating, but it's worth just recapping. And you I mean, might see little change in the CO2. Okay. And the reason is, is that these devices have fans in, so they mix the air up in the classroom differently. Okay. So you may see that that changes the CO2 reading slightly, but it's not actually physically, it's not removing the CO2, it's not ventilating a room. So I think it's really important, you have to have some ventilation. You just don't need as much, but you have to have ventilation as well as an air cleaning device. You can't just put an air cleaning device in, shut all the windows, because all it's doing is dealing with one part of your problem but you're not providing a good environment still so, so and, and, and james i think it's probably worth sort of saying as well that uh, uh, you know, because there is a lot of tough people to say but we know these things work why doesn't every sort of school have these well we know they work in laboratories uh, but laboratories don't have 30 sort of children within them uh, who have many many other exposures to sort of risk sort of other factors so so they work as Cassara says in terms of the physics but the question that we're addressing is, but do they then give you a substantial sort of a benefit in the things that are really going to improve outcomes for children and young people? And that's what we're trying to get a handle on in this trial. And, and you kind of almost pre, uh, prejudged my next question there, because I was going to say, and that in that case, yeah, should we be having these in every classroom? Should every classroom in the country have one of these air filtering machines? Is it is that worth the investment? I know that's a that's a big question, but any thoughts on that would be really interesting. Yeah, that's the question we don't know the answer to yet. So I think I would be really confident to say if you've got poor ventilation that you can't mitigate, um, that these provide you an, a solution, a short term solution until you can improve that ventilation. Um, I think there's probably many places where they will have benefits as well as the ventilation, not just for COVID, but the fact if you have got schools in really polluted environments, that they can deal with some of that, that high outdoor air pollution um, that the, the pupils uh, might be um, exposed to. But what we don't know is if you just put a blanket rollout machine in every room well not just one machine three machines in every room because you don't you know most of these you can't just deal with one you need more than one <laughs> to get sufficient flow so if you were to do that would that have a marked benefit and is it worth the investment 
And I think that's where we start getting into this complexity of them, because, you know, if you're a school, let's say you've got 30 classrooms, um, if you've identified a couple of classrooms which you, you know are not very well ventilated and we think, well, let's put some units in those classrooms, that's a fairly simple decision. You're maybe buying five or six units to put in deal with those classrooms. But if you want to do all of your classrooms, you're then starting to get to the point where you're buying 100 units and that's getting quite a lot of <laughs> quite a lot of investment quite a lot of money it's not something you're going to be able to maintain in-house anymore so you're going to have to think about a, a company to do that and it may be that that's a good solution but we have to we we need some more evidence to be able to say is that level of investment worthwhile yeah and don't get us wrong james we love to see investment in our schools we love to see investment in our children young sort of our people but if you invest in that area, you know, there's other major issues that are playing out around mental ill health, around food insecurity, around sort of safeguarding. So whatever we invest over here, uh, you know, puts pressure on other bits of the sort of our system. And that's just why we've really got to have the best possible evidence. So these really important decisions can be made, you know, with all the available sort of information. And that's our role, to get that evidence in sort of a place so those debates and those political decisions can happen, hopefully in partnership with everybody uh, involved. You know, it's parents, it's the school leaders, uh, and it's those policies that make it. But let's just get the evidence in place. Of course. And, and think of those schools that are considering buying them or, or using, you know, the DFC, DFE scheme. Are there certain bits of advice you would give to any school leader who's sitting there thinking, yeah, I think I need some of these? What should they be thinking about before buying or applying or clicking the button read our tes article <laughs> how, can, how can we summarize the article what's what's the key messages would you say so i think the first thing to say these portable units are easy you know they're not not particularly difficult things you plug them in and you know you have to set them right but they, they, they they're not that difficult but you need to think about how many you need where you need them you need to think about noise because they they all make some noise and the higher the flow air flows through the devices, the more noise they make. So they're, when they're being more effective for COVID, they're being noisier. Um, and you've got to weigh that up against what that's going to do to the learning environment for children. And particularly for some children and young people, they will, will be more sensitive to the effects of that noise than, than others. So that is quite a big consideration. I think robustness as well. So, you know, if you're just buying a very cheap unit for two months to get you through till you do something better, that might be one thing, but there are not going to be many schools in that position. The vast majority who want to buy these are going to be probably mitigating environments for a good 12 months or so before they're able to get any sort of proper changes in their ventilation. So you do need to think about whether the device you're buying is suitable for use in a classroom you know i think some of the, some of the devices that are sold for domestic use um will be fine in the corner of your living room but might not survive some school classrooms um and they've got to be easy to clean and then you've got to think about how you're going to maintain them and, and who well, looks after them i guess the ongoing running costs i mean as, as you said mark you know we don't this isn't all about money the first concern is about keeping people safe absolutely but as a school leader you've also got to face the reality of the budget you've got and i guess you know changing the filters regularly the ongoing costs the more you have if they've got the replaceable filters the higher your ongoing running costs and at the moment there's no 
additional money coming for that. So that's coming out of your budget, as far as we understand. So I suppose that you have to. Reality is you've got to look at that side of things as well, whether you'd like to or not. Yeah, okay. and I think it's worth saying that the, the electricity cost to run them is tiny. So that probably isn't a big deal. Um, but the filters are not necessarily cheap. It will depend on the unit you buy. So always look at the cost of the filters and how you're going to maintain them. But, but James, I, I agree. These are tough sort of decisions, but they're tough decisions at whatever level. I mean, you know, it, nationally, that's a tough decision. You know, it, it's a tough decision nationally, it's a tough decision regionally. It's a tough division at the school. So I think it is just, and unfortunately, there aren't sort of simple sort of answers, and it is a case by case. You know, school teachers, school leaders are, 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 are you know, fantastic. These are very intelligent sort of people that are very used to weighing up evidence and looking at costs and sort of benefits um, we'll try and provide as much sort of information you know through this sort of study as we can there is the sort of test article that would encourage people to sort of read because i think we try and sort of lay out the arguments that sort are of there uh, but as i say we completely understand that these are these are hard sort of decisions uh, the school leads have to make but then school leaders be making hard decisions consistently over the last sort of a couple of years um, and, and i trust our sort of our school leaders to look at the evidence to make you know informed sort of our judgment um, and uh, and act accordingly. I think everybody listening, every school leader will, will certainly, that will resonate about having to make tough decisions constantly over the last two years. So I think that's that's probably a good place to, to bring it uh, to a, to an end. So uh, first of all, can I say thank you to you, to you both for giving up your time and, and for, for joining me today. And also hopefully in the future, it would be nice to get you back on again once, once we've learned a bit more about the studies. Because um, as you say, this is a long-term thing now. So once the next set of results come out, it'll be great to have you back and, and talk to you a bit more. That's, that's great. Thanks, James. Thank you. James Bowen was joined by Professor Catherine Noakes and Professor Mark Mon-Williams. Of course, we say it frequently, don't we? But subscribing is the most effective way to pick up all of our podcasts. So please do select that option within your podcast app. And anytime you'd like to leave some feedback, a review for us about the School Leadership Podcast, we'd be very keen to read it. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT member, you can go online to naht.org.uk forward slash join. That's naht.org.uk forward slash join. As for social media, on Twitter we can be found at NAHT News. And you can hear our next episode in April. So until then, take care. Every single episode as it comes out, just click on subscribe.